They always say, trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On our first episode back of the year, we are going to go way back in time with Egyptologist Dr. Catherine Howley, where I ask her, who gave ancient Egyptians permission to be so advanced? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited to introduce our expert and our guest this week, Dr. Catherine Howley. You are an Egyptologist and the assistant professor at IFA and NYU. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited that you're here. So you study ancient cultures and civilizations in Egypt and in what is currently northern Sudan. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, in the, the Nile Valley, basically, if we want to put it in more geographical terms. Yeah. Love. Okay, the Nile Valley. So I just want to kind of rewind a little teensy weensy bit geographically and time-wise for people to kind of get into the flow of like, picture it, sure. Egypt, Sudan, you know, the BCE of it all. 
So then I yes. pulled up a map of the Nile and Sudan. So if, if anyone is not driving now and you want to pull this up on your um, thing, you can. So I, I have it pulled up. I'm just going to look at it just again really quick. Okay, so when you say the fourth cataract of the yep. Nile, so is one of those the cataracts? Like, uh, No, so, so Jonathan right now, he's pointing at the kind of, triangular bit at the very north of Egypt, that's actually called the Delta. So that's where the Nile goes into the Mediterranean Sea. But if you go south, basically to the border of modern Egypt and Sudan, you get these really rocky areas in the Nile, and those are called cataracts. Um, And they're really important, and they were in the ancient world, because that means that you can't easily sail across them. So they're almost like natural barriers in the river. And there's actually six of them, and they stretch from the the southern tip of Egypt down to modern-day Khartoum in Sudan. Um, Oh, I see Khartoum. Okay, so there's six. So there's six cataracts that go from the the Mm -hmm. very southern bit of Egypt. And then where does the Nile stop? Oh, well, it it kind of, so it splits in Khartoum into the Blue Nile and the White Nile. um, And one of them uh, goes to Uganda, uh-huh. uh, and the other one um, goes to Ethiopia. Okay, so ancient Egypt, honey. The original reason that I got curious and why I wanted to have you on was like, what was life like in in a day of like an ancient Egyptian? That was what the broader question is. But mm-hmm. on top of that, it's like the era of ancient Egypt is that is that era so big that you could even say give an average of what a deal like did one era not have running water and then another one like did or something? Like how much did they evolve uh, so, in ancient yes. Egypt? So so ancient Egypt, we always talk about it as if it's one thing and it's it's really not. I mean, even from a conservative point of view, you're really talking about three and a half thousand BCE all the way through to around 30 BCE. So you've got a stretch of millennia um, and actually you can go even further back and there's human occupation in what is now Egypt back to eight or even 10,000 BCE. So it's it's really difficult to, to generalize like that. Um, and it's also really difficult to generalize because um, what a day would have been for an ancient Egyptian would have varied just hugely depending on, um, yeah, your social status, um, what your position in society was, were you a man or a woman? Um, this, this would have, uh, caused huge differences in, in how different people would have experienced life in ancient Egypt. Okay. So I definitely want to ask about all those things. So, but when, Mm -hmm. okay. So that one thing that you said at the very beginning about like, you found ancient Egyptians from when to when? Uh, so if, if we stick to kind of the traditional um, viewpoint, then from about three and a half thousand BCE to 30 BCE, which is when Rome, um, the Battle of Actium, when um, August, the Roman Emperor Augustus comes into Egypt and uh, there aren't any more pharaohs after that. So after that, battle that's when there was no more pharaohs like he was the last pharaoh yeah and then yeah. Egypt, and then you have the roman emperors ruling over egypt instead you do and rome mm-hmm. is after greece right uh yes more or less yep so okay so that is when ancient egypt like 
it like was over the way that we think about it. But mm-hmm. their cultures yep. and stuff couldn't have just like stopped. Nope, nope, absolutely not. Um, and actually, that's one of the questions that most excites me about ancient Egypt. I'm really interested in what happens when um, ancient Egypt interacts with other cultures. So that's why I do my work in Sudan. Um, I also find it really interesting when the Romans come to Egypt and how they um, how they kind of mix their cultures together um, and how people deal with that cultural clash. That's something I find really interesting um, and, and it's it's fascinating to study. So 3000 BCE, mm-hmm. what does BCE stand yeah. for again? Before the Common Era. Before the Common Era. And and then, <laughs> and I, when I was little in the Midwest, they used to say it was like before Christ entered or something, but that isn't like, um, but like, but isn't that kind of like the same? So like 30 BCE would be like, that was like, like 30 years before zero. Exactly. Yeah. BC and BCE is, it, it refers to the same time period and BCE is just a more inclusive way of uh, talking about it. Yep. So like, but so like the common era started like in zero. And so like, like mm-hmm. ancient Egypt or ancient Egypt and like Greece and all those other things like happened like in BCE. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. 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 So then, so <laughs> three thousand BCE. What was the evolution mm-hmm. of ancient Egypt from like three thousand or thirty seven hundred BC or whatever that was to thirty yeah. BC? Like, like was there was there ever like a like a like like Egypt getting really powerful and then like a big fall and then they had to like come up again in that time? Yes. In fact, that happened numerous times. So, um, if if you're going all the way back to thirty five hundred BC, um. This is in the era before pharaohs even existed. There was no such thing as a centralized Egypt. You had different cultures living in different places in Egypt. Um, And from what we can see archaeologically, it seems as if the society was a little bit more egalitarian. So you don't see huge differences between the richest people and the poorest people in society. Um, And then once you get to about 2500 BCE, you get the emergence of um, kings. And that means that society becomes way more stratified. You have kings at the very top of your social pyramid, um, and then they are just way more powerful and richer than than everybody else. Um, So when you have these powerful kings, you have a centralized government, um, and that means there's lots of um, temple building, there's lots of pyramid building, um, lots of resources being put into creating art and architecture. Um, but every so often, um, normally there's there's either a problem within the royal family or there's maybe an environmental problem, which means that it becomes difficult to govern Egypt as one land. And then normally these centralized kingdoms kind of crumble and you get um, what we call intermediate periods. And that's when Egypt becomes more fragmented. Um, You tend to have smaller local rulers instead of these super powerful kings um, ruling over the whole of Egypt. Uh, And there tends to be more conflict in society. Um, But that also means because you don't have one person controlling all of the art and architecture, um, the archaeology tends to get really interesting in those intermediate periods as well, because it's not centralized. That means that people can experiment a bit more um, and you find some really weird and wonderful looking art. So when you think about like that classic 
uh, you know, 3,500 to 30 BCE, what was the most technologically advanced period or like the most like sciencey period or like progressive? Ooh. Um, or how would I you even you tell that? Look, yeah. Well, yeah. So how would we tell that? We, we have to look at the archaeological remains and what, uh, what can we actually see in the ground from these time periods? Um, I think you could Egyptologists would probably love to debate this question, um, but you could, for instance, think about the Old Kingdom in about 2500 BC, which is when they built the pyramids. Um, and we know that these are just incredible feats of, of stone architecture. I mean, they're like 4,000 um, years it, old and they're still there. Yeah, yeah, more than 4,000 years old, in fact. Um, and not just the kind of um, immense amounts of labor and effort and money that would have had to have gone into constructing them, but um, even kind of the mathematical knowledge that was needed in order to to make them so perfectly. So even at that really early time period, we know that um, the ancient Egyptians were were very technologically advanced. Yeah. Now, I learned when I was in London, I went to this, um, I think it was a King Tut exhibit. And they were saying how like with hieroglyphics and like the like being able to learn how to read and write was like very rare. And it was like very controlled because like information was very controlled. Is that yeah. true? Uh, yes. Um, so, I mean, I, I can tell you as someone who's learned hieroglyphics myself, it's not the easiest language to learn how to, to read and write. So um, it would have created... Um, it would have required like a, a really long education um, in order to actually become um, uh, like literate, I guess, in, in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Um, so we know that that, uh, that um, uh, job um, would have only been a, um, open to the highest elite people, really. So if, if you were a scribe, somebody who learnt how to read and write, um, you would have had a fairly lofty position in, in society. Um, and I'm not sure whether that was really um, on purpose, designed to control information, but that was the, um, that was the effect that it had, because... Even with the most generous estimates, we think only about 1% of the Egyptian population would have been able to read and write. What was like the biggest like New York City of ancient Egypt? Well, it depends on the time period, but there were two main ones. Um, the One of the big ones is Memphis. Uh, so that's up in the north, basically where modern day Cairo is. Um, and that's a really great place to put um, an important capital city because you're really close to the Mediterranean and all these trading routes with with all these other places. Um, and then the other one is um, Thebes, which is in modern day Luxor. And that was really a religious center. So um, if you wanted to go and, and worship gods at the biggest temples in Egypt, you would have gone um, a little further south down to Thebes. And now for the Memphis, it was like modern day Cairo like mm -hmm. because there's a modern day city built on top of it like how would you really excavate it and like be able to see what was there that's a great question and in many cases we actually can't um and that's a problem we have uh, for a lot of egyptian um cities ancient egyptian cities because uh they're all both the ancient and the modern cities are built really close to the nile so what happens is the modern cities tend to be built on top of the ancient ones 
And then you can't excavate them because someone's living on top of the archaeological <laughs> site. So that means we don't actually know all that much about ancient Egyptian cities, especially in comparison with um, burial places and, and cemeteries. Ah, okay, we're going to take a really quick break and we'll be right back with more after this. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. Ooh, honey, the weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I needed to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. Honey, these premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, they're giving you washable silk tops. I love the quality of their fabrics. It really is stunning. Oh my God. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash curious. Welcome back to Getting Curious. We have Dr. Catherine Halley. So ancient Egypt is a very long time. It took the span of like 3000 years, you know, Mm -hmm. so that was a long time. So and it had intermediate pe- intermediate periods where there like wasn't major royal families happening and it sounds yep. like you were saying that like the two cities that like it would be like if you saw you know like oh my gosh here's chicago or here's new york and then like they're not so much there anymore would be like the luxor and the memphis but luxor is still there <laughs> you can see the stuff right that's like where the sphinx is and yep. stuff uh no the sphinx is actually uh, by the pyramids in modern day Cairo, but oh. um, the, for instance, Karnak Temple, that's a really famous one. That's in Luxor. Um, the Valley of the Kings, that's also in Luxor. Uh, so Tut's tomb, that's that's down there as well. So what was like the last um, untouched like Egyptian tomb that was discovered? Oh goodness, um, untouched. Yeah. Uh, Is there any? Could there still be any out there that we haven't found? Oh, sure. Um, Well, I don't know if you've been following the news about the possible hidden tomb within uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. Yes, yes. So that's a possibility that maybe there is a hidden chamber behind uh, one of the walls of Tutankhamun's tomb. And if there was something there, then it's highly likely that that would be untouched. So that's a really exciting prospect um, as as we move forward. Uh, But but most tombs have been looted in in one way or another because they were full of such precious things that um, 
yeah, even in ancient Egyptian times, people just really wanted to rob them. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about like ancient, what do we know about like ancient Egyptians and like what the day in a life of like an ancient Egyptian would have been kind of like the farmer's almanac, if you will. Like mm-hmm. what was like the average mm-hmm. lifespan for an ancient Egyptian? Because we know a lot of pharaohs died early because they were like murdered, poisoned. Like didn't that happen a lot? Like for power? Uh, I'm not sure. Sh- it, it certainly happened occasionally, um, but we also have very um, quite a lot of pharaohs who we know lived for a really long time. Um, so, for instance, I've just been teaching the Middle Kingdom to my uh, my students, and there were numerous pharaohs in the Middle Kingdom who reigned kind of 30, 40 years or more. Um, so, so if you were a pharaoh, actually, you had a pretty good chance, I think, of, of living until you were were old and old and were so many of them like married to their families it didn't that create health problems uh so later in egyptian history um in fact at the very end of egyptian history yes we do know that pharaohs married their sisters on a fairly regular basis um but that seems to have been the exception rather than the rule thankfully oh so that didn't happen as commonly as like what people think no no and it was really more just like at the very end Yes. Interesting. Yeah. What was it uh, like a normal time, a, a typical average life expectancy in ancient Egypt? And did it fluctuate? Yeah, so it's average life expectancies are, are kind of hard in the ancient world, because if you calculate them, it tends to be something really, really low, like, you know, 30 years old. But that's a little bit misleading because so many people in the ancient world died in childhood that that really skews the average. So Basically, if you lived through childhood, um, you had a pretty good chance of making it until you were, I don't know, 50 or or something like that. Um, But uh, childhood was obviously a very dangerous time. Um, As for fluctuating throughout time, I'm I'm not sure, but we know that um, the Egyptians, they, like everyone in the ancient world, suffered from many health problems. Um, and many of them were probably in quite a lot of pain when they died. So there's been a lot of anatomical studies of, of mummies and bodies done. Um, pretty much every Egyptian had really terrible teeth. Um, there was a lot, you know, there's a lot of sand in Egypt and a lot of that sand got into the bread. Uh, and then when you eat the sandy bread, that wears all your teeth down. Um, lots of tooth decay, um, lots of diseases like malaria, of course. Uh, so that those kind of things would have been absolutely endemic. So um, you might have made it to your 50th, even your 60th birthday, but um, it might have been quite painful to uh, to be alive a lot of the time. Any records of like the oldest person in ancient Egypt? Like, was there ever anyone who made it to like 80? Um, Do we know? It's kind of a random well, question. Well, uh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, we... Probably the best records we have are for the kings because we know how long they ruled. Um, so there's one king in the old kingdom, Pepi II. He came to the throne as a really young boy and then he reigned for um, yeah, well over 60 years, I think. Um, and Ramesses II, who, of course, uh, is the, the really famous uh, pharaoh who, because of um, Passover, he also reigned for a really long time, so probably lived into his 80s. Ooh, really? Yep, yep. So, like, what were, like, some of, like, the different jobs of, like, in, of, like, the most thriving ancient Egypt? Was there hairdressers? Yeah. 
Yeah, in fact, being a hairdresser was, um, if you were the hairdresser to the king, then you were set for life. Um, you were someone in the really high elite and you got a really swanky tomb. Um, so, yes, you could be a royal hairdresser. That would be a great job to have in ancient Egypt. We know that both men and women wore makeup uh, and they had some really elaborate hairstyles uh, and they really loved wigs. What loved was what about haircuts? Did they get haircuts or was it just really long hair? Uh, so generally they actually um, shaved their hair off and then they would put a wig on top of that. You could also be a royal manicurist. That was very important. Um, so if you were if you were an elite member of ancient Egypt, you would probably have a um, an administrative job, maybe even several. So. That could be in the royal household, that could be um, in the army. Um, you probably also had some kind of priestly title as well. So you had some kind of role in the temple. Um, maybe if you were a little lower down the social ladder, you could be a scribe or a priest, um, maybe even an artist for, or an artisan for the, for the royal tombs. And then what did like poverty look like in ancient Egypt? Um, well, that's something that we kind of have to guess at, really, because the thing is, if you're poor, you don't have many material possessions. And that means that you don't show up in the archaeological record, unfortunately. Do they not talk about them in like writings or? Sometimes, yes. But um, the writings that tend to talk about poverty, they tend to be um, one that they're, they're written by the elite. So it's a very biased picture. Um, so a lot of the elite in ancient Egypt, they love to write about how great they were during their life. And they'll say, I fed the hungry and I clothed the naked. So um, this basically means that they looked after poor people. Um, but of course, we're only seeing we're only seeing that then through through the rich people's eyes. Um, yeah. And we have a very small number of um, literary compositions which tell us about kind of farmers, um, not necessarily really poor people, but people who were certainly lower down the social ladder. And then what about like a judicial system or like, you know, governmental systems that we think of like now? Was there a judiciary branch? Yeah. So um, I'm not sure whether we'd call it a judiciary, but there was certainly kind of a, a system of legal Process. So one of those literary compositions I just mentioned, um, there's a, it's a story called The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant. Um, and the peasant, the farmer, he gets wronged by, um, by somebody. Um, and he decides that he doesn't want to stand for this. So he actually decides to go and see um, the mayor and then the king in order to sort his problem out. And he's able uh, by by going through this legal process to actually make sure that justice is served and that he um, he gets to keep um, his his possessions. Do you know what that story was about? Like someone came and tried to tax him for his goats or something, and he was like, "Fuck you! These are my goats," or something. <laughs> yeah, basically, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what happens. So, um, a, a powerful man kind of. Um, does does him wrong and beats him with a stick and steals his stuff and and then he decides that um, he's going to stand up for the little man and uh, make sure that he uh, he he gets his his just desserts. So there was like beauty, like there was like hairdressers, but there probably really wasn't like books that were lots of books because like there wasn't public consumption of words. 
So mm-hmm. maybe not like tons of books, but there was tons of architecture. Yep. What do we know about like sex in Egypt? Was there gay stuff? I love gay stuff. Or just any <laughs> queer stuff, poly stuff. Yeah, so um, we do have a few references to gay sex in we ancient do? Egypt. We um, do? Yes, yes, we do. Um, there's one of the most famous myths in ancient Egypt is called the uh, the Battle of Horus and Seth. And Horus and Seth are two gods, and they're they're battling it out to be king of Egypt. Um, and they have lots of different fights um, and uh, sometimes one comes out on top, sometimes the other one comes out on top. And then at a certain moment, um, Seth decides that in order to um, try and beat Horus, he's actually going to um, try and rape him. So, so this is a, an instance of, of gay sex. Um, and it seems that from, from looking at that reference and also some other references in ancient Egyptian literature, um, it seems that the Egyptians, they, they were perfectly aware that people with same-sex uh, desire existed. Um, but if if you were the um, receiving partner, um, that was somewhat looked down upon. But um, if you were the, the, uh, the senior, the active partner, then that wasn't um, quite so... So you're talking about topping and bottoming. In the same way. Yes, I am talking about topping and bottoming, yeah. So if you were... He, a bottom, they were like, ew, but if they were topping, they were like, oh, that's okay. Yeah. How rude! Bottom shaming I, in I ancient know, Egypt. <laughs> but it seems to be somehow tied in with ideas of masculinity and the fact that the man should always be the top in a sexual relationship, whether that's with a woman or with another another man. Were there people that were like considered now would there have been like transgender people in ancient Egypt or do we see like a non-binary or like a transgender sort of is it that ever talked Um, about I can't think of any examples from um kind of real life um but what we do see is actually several gods who have kind of um tendency uh features of, of both sexes um so for instance uh, there's the god hapi who is uh, the god of fertility and the nile and he's always shown um with uh, breasts for instance uh, so he has a very androgynous body um and then there is actually uh, one famous king akhenaten who lived in about 1200 bc um and he shows himself in a lot of his artwork also with a very androgynous body. So he has breasts, he has um, kind of wide hips, which which look quite feminine. Um, and this probably doesn't talk about his actual body. Um, we are pretty sure that he fathered children. So, um, you know, he, he was uh, a functioning man in that sense. Um, but it's probably related to these ideas of fertility. Um, and, and in order to kind of show that he was um, a king who could look after Egypt and ensure its continued um, success, he chose to show himself with this kind of androgynous body, which really emphasized ideas of fertility. What about lesbians? No lesbian love in ancient Egypt at all? I'm afraid. Are you fucking serious? Any evidence for lesbians in ancient Egypt, unfortunately, yeah. But like so many, like women in the ancient world, they never, almost never get to tell their stories. What the uh, fuck is that all about? What about Cleo fucking Patra? What was her deal? 
Now, well, she she was special, and any woman who actually managed to make it onto the throne in ancient Egypt, like they they were amazing. In order to get to that position um, and then be successful, we know that they must have been just forces of. of oh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about all that. So, was there like okay. a law where like you couldn't really like be a pharaoh if you were a lady, but then someone changed that? So there's there's no law, um, but the problem comes with the religious aspects of the role of pharaoh. So the the word for king is genetically masculine in ancient Egyptian, and there's no feminine equivalent. So if you're a queen in ancient Egypt because you're married to a king, you're actually just called wife of the king. You're not called queen. Um, and and then there's all sorts of religious aspects of the role, which which basically means you have to be a guy in order to be a successful king in the Egyptian religious conception. So what that means, um, my favorite female pharaoh um, is called Hatshepsut, mm. and she had to do some amazing things in order to be successful. And what she did actually was basically start portraying herself as a man in her inscriptions and in her statues. Uh, so it's actually kind of a misnomer to call her Queen Hatshepsut because she was she was a king. Um, she called herself king. She dressed like a king. She did everything that a king should do. So, you know, we should really call her King Hatshepsut, even though um, she was she was a woman. Did she have a husband? She did not, no. Um, but she did have a, um, a trusted advisor by the name of Senenmut. Um, and we know that her relationship with her advisor was um, a source of um, gossip, I guess, in ancient Egypt. So there's even a very naughty graffito in, um, in a place in, in Thebes where uh, an ancient Egyptian has gone and drawn King Hatshepsut um, having sex with with Sen and Moot, basically. Um, so we know that there were scandalous rumours about the two of them, but they were not, in fact, married. And she didn't have kids? Or she- uh, so she did. So she was, she was... The reason she came to the throne, sorry, um, is because initially she was married to a king. The king then died, um, and there was no son to, uh, to immediately take over the throne. So what she did was take on um, the regency uh, for her stepson, who was at that time far too young to become to become king. Uh, and then she decided she both kind of liked being on the throne and was kind of good at it. So she, uh, she basically stayed uh, on the throne and, until she died, um, and not just as regent, but as full-blown um, king of Egypt. And then did the stepson take over? He did, yes, eventually. Um, yeah. And then about 20 years after Hatshepsut died, um, someone went around Egypt carving her picture and her name out of all of her temples. Um, so it was almost as if they were trying to erase her from history. And there's been a lot of debate in Egyptology about exactly why that was. Um, and uh, a lot of people have liked to think that it was because her son, Tutmosis, um, her stepson, he he did not appreciate uh, having his stepmother on the throne. Um, 
but we don't know whether that's that's true or not. It might have something more to do with um, political events, which we don't fully understand. Oh my God, I could talk about this all day. I'm so interested. We have to take a really quick break. We're going to be okay. right back with more right after this. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, but I should stop paying for me time with whatever credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offer 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Sign me up. Room upgrades? Yes, please. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to Getting Curious. We have Dr. Catherine Halley. Okay, so you are, I mean, I think with ancient Egypt, it's like between burial and what was a life like and all of, I mean, there's so many things and I really could talk about it for seven hours, but you, what you have been studying recently is the, the temple of Saman. Did I say it right again? Sanam, you got Sanam. the end. Dang it. It's fine. <laughs> oh, Sanam, the temple of Sanam. So basically, what's really interesting from what I can tell of the research is, is that, you know, for hundreds of years now, like 1800s, 1900s, this idea of like, you know, finding these tombs in Egypt and finding the pharaohs was, I mean, people were talking about that in the 1800s and 1900s in the United Kingdom and stuff. So it's like those sites have been very much pillaged, seen, and, and all of this. But in these fourth yeah. cataracts and all these cataracts, like as you get farther down towards Sudan, it's like they haven't really been touched as much. Isn't that right? Uh, so, yeah, there's been a lot less archaeological exploration in Sudan than in Egypt, um, mostly for practical reasons, because Sudan has been a lot kind of harder to access than Egypt. Um, it's a lot less developed than than Egypt. Uh, but recently, a lot more archaeologists have been starting to work in, in Sudan instead of Egypt. And the, the archaeology is just fabulous. Yeah, really exciting. And so does archaeology in Sudan like all kind of run along the Nile like it does in Egypt as well? Yes, mainly not not entirely, but um in the ancient world just as today, uh people people needed water to live and there is very very little rainfall in Egypt and Sudan. So that means if you if you need a water source, you're really reliant on the river. Um so that, in a sense, makes our jobs easier because if we're looking for habitation sites where people lived, um, we know roughly the area where we need to look. Um, but there's also lots of interesting archaeology now going on in the deserts. Um, Sudan um, had a lot of natural resources, uh, lots of gold, um, 
precious materials like that. And that was all quarried out in the desert. So um, a lot of archaeologists now are doing really interesting work, basically following the ancient trade routes um, out into the eastern and the western deserts and, and finding those really remote sites out there. Now, if we think of ancient Egypt as ancient, as ancient Egypt, what was like ancient Sudan? Like, what was that? What was that culture called? Or so we normally call it ancient Nubia, um, and that refers to uh, yeah the the northern part of Sudan, basically from about the level of modern day Khartoum up and up to the Egyptian border. Um, but again, that's also a bit of a simplification simplification because we know that uh, many different cut cultural groups were living in ancient Nubia. Um, and it was actually a lot less centralized than ancient Egypt. So um, you always have a lot more cultural variation going on um, in the, the southernmost part of the Nile than you do further north. So it's just like a little bit more Game of Thronesy in the sense that there was like more kind of clans, more tribes, more people like self-governing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And a lot of that is just generally more undiscovered than Egypt. Yeah, so um, we know less about it, partly because there's just been much less archaeology done, um, partly because Nubian cultures, for instance, they they didn't build much in stone. Um, they tended to build in mud brick, and stone, of course, uh, preserves much, much better than mud brick. So it's, it's much harder to find the mud brick architecture in Nubia than it is to find the huge stone pyramids in Egypt. Right. Um, and then the other reason is, that the Egyptians, of course, had a written language. They wrote lots down for us. Uh, so that really helps us understand the culture. The Nubians, for most of their history, were a non-literate um, people. So that means they they don't have any, um, any written records. Uh, and that means that we're reliant entirely on the archaeology. And that uh, really limits the, the kind of questions we can ask. Um, but it also makes the job much more exciting because, um, yeah, you, you don't have it kind of all laid out on a papyrus there for you. <laughs> right. So what have you discovered about ancient Nubia? So the temple that we're working at um, is an interesting one. It comes from the middle of the first millennium BC. So it starts at about 650 BCE. Um, and it's at a time when the rulers of Nubia um, actually became really, really powerful and they rose up and they conquered ancient Egypt. So for the first time in Nubia's and Egypt's history, um, it was the uh, black civilizations from the south that conquered uh, the Egyptian civilization to the north. Um, and that's super interesting because um, the, the Nubian kings, they adopted lots of um, Egyptian cultural elements. So they became converts to the Egyptian religion. They started building temples in an Egyptian style, just like the ones we're looking at. Um, but they only um, pick, picked and chose the, the bits that were useful to them. So what you get is kind of this super interesting um, culture where on the surface it looks very Egyptian, but if you start just poking a little bit more, suddenly all of these strange elements come out, which are actually elements of the, the Nubian culture. And a lot of those elements are things we haven't been able to see before because they've been building in mud brick, for instance, instead of stone. But now they're building like Egyptians, so they build a stone temple. Um, and there's all sorts of interesting, interesting things there about how the Nubians kind of um, 
adopted the the Egyptian culture and also kind of used it to serve their own interests. So how far up did the Nubians conquer Egypt in 630? Uh, so the temple where we work is 650, um, but the Nubians actually uh, invaded Egypt in approximately 720 BCE. Um, but they, first of all, they were just in the south. They went up to Thebes, uh, modern-day Luxor, and then uh, King Tahako, who's the guy who built our temple, he was probably the greatest of all the Nubian pharaohs. He goes all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea and even further into um, kind of Syria-Palestine in, in the Middle East as well. So he he basically has um, an empire. Uh, so he he has a lot of territory that he's So he is of. considered an ancient Egyptian then. Like he like he was in that time of like 3500 to 30 BC. Sure. So um, he's off because he was king of Egypt, right? right? So he he appears in all of the um, the histories of ancient Egypt. But it's really important to remember that he, um, you know, Egyptian was probably not his native language. Um, he came from a culture which was much further south, um, which has a lot more um, commonalities and links to other sub-Saharan African cultures than it um, than it. Uh, also does to to Egypt, for instance. So um, he conquers Egypt, but he is not himself an Egyptian. And I think that's that's really important. So did the scribes in Egypt kind of talk shit about him in the record a little bit? Or were people like, like, we can't believe that this guy beat us or something? Or was it not? Or did people respect him? No. So so at the time when the Nubian kings conquered Egypt, they were actually, as far as we can tell, reasonably popular because they they were really religious. So they came into Egypt and they spent all of this um, money and resources on building beautiful temples and adding to temples which already existed uh, and basically giving lots of money to all the temples. Um, so from that sense, I think probably they... Um, they would have been welcomed at least by certain sections of the of the population as kind of true pious adherents of the egyptian religion um however after about 100 years uh, some of the local egyptian rulers started getting a little bit antsy about the fact that it was nubians ruling over them so then um an egyptian king comes back to power and then just like as uh, happened with Hatshepsut, he sends his craftsmen out with their chisels and they go around all of those lovely temples that the Nubians built and they chop out all of the names. They leave the temples because they were really nicely built um, and you don't want to offend the gods, but they just take out the, the Nubian names. Got it. So that is the deal with like ancient Nubians. Did Nubians end up learning how to write? Did they end up getting ancient Nubian scribes because they did adopt things? Yeah. So initially, um, it's really interesting to look at how this develops. So so first of all, um, what they do is they borrow the Egyptian language. So um, they would have been speaking Nubian, but if they wanted to write anything, they would do it in Egyptian hieroglyphic. Um, but obviously, that's not that's not a great fix because not every Nubian would have um, spoken Egyptian. Also, Egyptian hieroglyphic, it just like that's that's a lot of birds to write in a row. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it takes a long time. Um, so what they did was they then borrowed the um, 
the Egyptian alphabets, if you like, and they simplified it. And then they used that alphabet in order to write their own language, um, which was a language known as Meroitic. Uh, so this is exactly what I was talking about. They take the bits that are useful to them and then they adapt them so that it actually fits their own needs. Um, so then we have this whole new language, Meroitic, um, and we have quite a lot of text written it, in it. The only frustrating thing is it's still undeciphered. So we have all of these wonderful texts, which we're pretty sure are describing kind of interesting historical events and we can't read them yet. <laughs> is it because how are you going to decipher that? Will you just have to compare it to hyper, hieroglyphics and hope that you can get some characters drawn out or? Uh, so we know how it sounded because they use the Egyptian um, alphabet. Uh, so we can, the, the, the problem is that Meroitic doesn't seem to be related to any other language that we know. Um, and that's really a problem for <laughs> for translating it. So um, there's there's a lot of interesting work being done right now um, trying to look at um, various modern African languages to see whether there are any connections. Um, and some connections have been found. So we can read um, very small parts here and there and be pretty sure we know what, what it says. Um, but kind of the, the more intricate grammar, um, longer inscriptions, that still escapes us. Um, and it's, it's just going to take a really long time, probably. And um, hopefully, the more texts that are found by archaeologists, the easier it will become. Because the bigger your, your corpus is, the bigger the number of texts you have, the easier it becomes to decipher a language. If there was ever like a key between like Meroitic and ancient Egyptian, would that be like the unlocking key that would be able to decipher yes, all those things? That would be amazing. Does anyone think that <laughs> that could exist? Found one yet. Um, it. It might. It, it certainly could. Um, but we haven't found it yet, unfortunately. I'll keep my fingers crossed. So with Meroitic and with the ancient Nubian culture, so after about 100 years, they like the local Egyptians like rise up and they're like, no, no, no. So what happens? Do the, the Nubian rulers go back down south and kind of take back over their own thing and they develop this language? And then what happens with them? So uh, the Nubian rulers, they they have a bit of bad luck, really, because unfortunately they're ruling at a time when the whole Mediterranean region is is kind of in a in a bit of um, a bit of a rough patch. Uh, so you also have the Assyrian Empire in modern day um, Iraq, and the rulers in the Assyrian Empire also want their own um, empire to to play with. So they invade Egypt. Um, and they are really powerful. And unfortunately, that means the Nubians, um, they can't really deal with it. So they have to they have to go back south um, and they they are just ruling over Nubia from that point on. Um, but they still have powerful kings um, and they now have this incredible tradition of uh, stoneworking, of um, religious ritual. And the longer they the longer time goes on and they're not ruling over Egypt, kind of the more it diverges from Egyptian traditions. Um, 
So they continue, for instance, to bury their rulers under pyramid graves. And um, one really cool fact, which very few people know, is that there are actually more pyramids now in Sudan than there are in Egypt. And that's because of these Meroitic rulers in the last half of the first millennium BC um, who just go on a pyramid building spree. Um, and all of the kings and all of the queens are buried under these really awesome, very steep-sided pyramids. Um, so the, the archaeology is fantastic and the, um, the archaeological sites in Sudan are fantastic. Um, and it's, it's really worth a, a visit for anyone interested in archaeology because the, uh, the sites are, are just amazing. And then what are some of the biggest like differences between that ancient Nubian culture of the last half of the first millennium BCE and, and what we think about is like, you know, ancient Egypt from farther back and even at the same time? Well, one of the coolest ways in which it differed is that women had a really prominent role in Nubian society and women could be queens, ruling queens in uh, Nubia. So um, there were lots of really prominent female rulers of uh, Nubia at this time when Egypt is still being ruled by men. Um, and they are shown on, on monuments as these gloriously strong and curvy women holding huge weapons and smiting all the enemies of, of Nubia and making sure that um, Nubia is is doing doing okay. So, um, yeah, I think that's my, my favorite aspect of uh, Nubian cultures at that time period. Love that. Okay, wait, we have yeah. to have you back on to talk more about ancient Nubia specifically um, and the differences. Because, like, I want to know about currency. I want to know about... Queer stuff. I want to talk about revolutions. I want to talk about all the things of, of ancient. Was there any cool gay stuff in Nubia too? I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. I'm afraid. Sorry. I wish <laughs> there was like some like nice gay love stories and. I know. You, yeah, that would that would be nice. If you keep your eye out for that, if you hear about anything, let us I'll, know. I'll look. I'll look for it, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> Before we let you go, Dr. Catherine Howley. Well, of course, but is there anything that we missed that we need to just touch upon uh, for people if they're really spending so much extra time at home, any really interesting stories that we didn't talk about that people should research or any little final parting thoughts? Uh, yeah, just um, ancient Egypt is wonderful um, and ancient Nubia is is even cooler. So I, I really encourage you, not many people have heard of ancient Nubia and part of part of the reason why is because it's it's a black African culture. So it's never been part of our kind of cultural narrative. But I think it's really important that people know a little bit more about it and they they understand how um, how how many cultural achievements ancient Africans actually had. So I would encourage them to go look that up on Wikipedia, learn a little bit more about it. Um, you'll be glad you did. Wow, that's fascinating. So, and I see the ways that like, racism would play into the overabundance of knowledge of ancient mm -hmm. Egyptian lighter oh, yeah. skinned histories and yeah. archaeology, but not of the counterparts of darker skin. Wow. Yes. That is fascinating. Burying the lead, Jonathan, get it together. Um, Dr. Catherine Halley, thank you so much for your time. We have to have you back on. Thank you so it's much for talking to us. I would love to. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Venice. My guest this week was Egyptologist Dr. Catherine Howley. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. 
If you enjoy our show, please introduce a friend. Heck, introduce 10, like thousand, however many followers you have, honey. Tell everybody about it. Um, honestly, we, you know, we love that type of support and we really appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson and our transcriptionist is Cassie Jerkins. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson.